Acts chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 54. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence we've sensed as we've worshiped you. We rejoice with our brother Sam over this miraculous touch in his body. Lord, I ask now that you will give your special anointing upon the preaching of your word today. And that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. I pray for a special touch upon me to not only have utterance and clarity of thought and speech, but that you will strengthen my body as I deliver your word. I lift up other life-giving churches to you. I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I ask you to send the Holy Spirit after them and draw them back to you. Lord, as I pray that prayer, there are names and faces that flash before my eyes of people that I'm thinking of. Don't let one of them be lost, I pray. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters. The matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our soon returning King. Amen. You may be seated. prophet Isaiah made a proclamation in the Old Testament that could have easily been talking about our modern world of the 21st century. He said in Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. When our political leaders make misleading statements or falsify information for personal gain so they can remain in power, truth has stumbled in the street. When the news media ceases to report facts and information and trumpets a message designed to promote an agenda, truth has stumbled in the streets. When affirming that biblical marriage is only between a man and a woman is criminalized as hate speech, truth has stumbled in the street. 
When an athlete chooses to identify with a gender other than what is determined by biology at birth and is subsequently applauded for being bold and brave, truth has stumbled in the street. When those who dare challenge the cultural shifts with facts, logic, and reason are maligned and ridiculed and canceled, truth has stumbled in the street. More and more in a culture run amok, it is becoming increasingly necessary for believers to refuse to be swayed by every wind that blows and take a stand for that which is right and true. This isn't really a new problem. It's, it's a problem as old as humanity. In every generation, there's been a need for those who are people of faith to take a stand against injustice, against immorality, against discrimination, against every force that pits itself against that which is holy and righteous. In Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel had sinned by crafting a golden calf and bowing before it in worship. When Moses confronted Aaron and the people, he called out in verse 26, who is on the Lord's side? That challenge is as compelling and relevant today as it was then. The Bible is filled with stories of people who were called upon to take a stand in the face of seemingly insurmountable, impossible odds. Joseph was called upon to take a stand against Potiphar's wife. David was called upon to take a stand against Goliath. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called upon to take a stand against a pagan king. Now here in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts, we find a man who was called upon to take a stand against religious leaders and against a religious system that sought to extinguish the light of the early church. We are first introduced to Stephen at the beginning of chapter 6 of Acts. Prior to chapter 6, the church has had a spectacular beginning, has witnessed incredible miracles, has weathered the first waves of opposition, and has experienced unbelievable growth. As chapter 6 opens, there is an internal dispute that arises concerning the care for a group of widows of the church. I don't know if we can fully appreciate in our culture of welfare and governmental agencies just how significant it was that the early church was trying to provide and care for these widows. See, in that culture, a widow had basically no rights. She had no support. She had no means of providing even the basic necessities of life. And one of the great things that made the early church so attractive to the masses was this program of helping the widow. The church provided food, the church provided clothing, the church provided basic necessities of life to care for and comfort those who were poor and underprivileged. As good as this program of help was, it seems one segment of these people were being ignored in the daily serving of food. We don't know exactly why the Bible is silent as to the cause or the reason. It was an organizational problem at best and a racial problem at worst. Either way, it was a problem. When this problem develops, the offended ones do what any of us would do. They complain to the management. 
in this case, the 12 disciples. Well, the disciples recognized their primary mission and purpose was to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, but it was also important for the widows to receive proper care. The solution they found is recorded in verse 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. These are the first deacons of the church. One of these seven deacons is our man, Stephen. According to verse 5, Stephen was a man full of faith. According to verse 8, he was a man full of grace and power. So full of faith, grace, and power was he that verse 8 records he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And you would think everybody would be happy about this, uh, but everybody wasn't happy. Anytime God begins blessing, anytime God begins using someone for divine purposes, you just as well to mark it down, there are going to be some people who are not going to like it. Whether, whether it is simply because they're in the flesh and are jealous or whether they are motivated by the enemy and are persecuted, when God begins blessing and when God begins using you for his glory, <laughs> opposition is going to arise. That's what, exactly what we see happening at the end of chapter 6. Stephen was teaching in the synagogue about the superiority of Jesus to the temple and to the law of Moses and some of the people wanted to take exception to his teaching. When they were unable to refute his ministry and his message, they resorted to unscrupulous means of discounting the man. They secretly bribed men to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. They stirred up the people in a vicious rumor-mongering campaign. Stephen was hauled before the Sanhedrin council, the same ones who only weeks before had condemned Jesus to death. The false witnesses made their accusations. They accused him of speaking against the temple, speaking against the law of Moses, and speaking against the way of life they had known for generations. Then Stephen was given the opportunity to make his defense. His speech is the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament. In this Stephen isn't really defending himself against the charges at all. Instead, he uses this occasion as an opportunity to proclaim his faith in Jesus and as a means of trying to convince the people of the error of their ways. He takes this opportunity to proclaim the centrality and superiority of Jesus as the only way. He takes his stand upon this truth. And this message of Stephen highlights the key components of how we are to take a stand of, as believers in a godless world. First of all, we are to speak truth to the lost. Stephen begins his message with a history lesson, starting with the call of God to Abraham. Then he travels with Israel down to Egypt and talks of their salvation as a nation through the efforts of Joseph. He includes the slavery in Egypt and traces the life of Moses from his birth to his preservation and education in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. He talks about Moses' first attempts at delivering his people and his subsequent escape into the land of Midian. He recounts the call of Moses at the burning bush and how he returned to Egypt and led the exodus. Stephen covers a lot of ground in his message. 
He's just retracing their history, reminding them of where they've come from, and at the same time identifying with them because their history is his history too. He continues by talking about their first disobedience to the law by worshiping the golden calf and reminds them of their years of wandering in the wilderness. He spends time talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness and how it was a precursor to the temple which was in the heart of David to construct and which his son Solomon was finally allowed to build. And as, you, as Stephen speaks, you can almost see the heads of the people nodding as they recognize the familiar story being told once more. Then in verse 48, the message takes a sudden turn they didn't expect. Everybody was tracking with him until he gets to this point. He's just reminded them that Solomon built the temple, and then he says, however, you got to watch when somebody says however. <laughs> however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And now Stephen begins to make application and speak truth to where they are living. It's in verses 51 through 53. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, that's not exactly the way to get lots of amens. I'm just telling you right now, Stephen is under no illusion. He recognizes his message is unpopular. It goes contrary to the culture. It isn't a message to placate and absolve and give assurance that everything is permissible, and yet he doesn't back down. In the face of opposition, he continues to speak truth to where people are living, that's called taking a stand. And that's the challenge we face today if we are going to be a relevant church in a modern world. Just because opinion polls agree doesn't make it correct. Just because laws are passed giving permission doesn't make it godly. Just because it has become common practice doesn't make it right. Now, I, I, I know, I know, you want to be kind and compassionate and caring and loving, absolutely. But when a loved one is in a same-sex relationship endorsed by the laws of the land as a marriage, and this loved one posts pictures on social media celebrating the anniversary of this union, it isn't loving to click like and to offer congratulations in the comment section. Now, I may be looking for another pastorate after this <laughs> message today. I'm not sure. You certainly don't need to beat up on them. But neither should you give implicit approval and endorsement for a lifestyle that is contrary to God's word. While I'm this deep into it, I might as well just go ahead. <laughs> Followers of Jesus 
should not endorse or vote for politicians who support policies that are contrary to God's word, regardless of how much economic benefit it will bring. At the same time, I'm just going to try to hit everybody today, all right? At the same time, we should be very cautious about those who give lip service to godly positions, but their own lifestyle is marked by immorality, abuse, and deception. We have to remember today, our help doesn't come from City Hall. Our help doesn't come from the governor's mansion. Our help doesn't come from the White House. Our help doesn't come from the Supreme Court. Our help comes from the Lord. And I gotta tell you today, my biggest concern isn't with the latest ruling of the Supreme Court. My biggest concern isn't with the latest legislation passed by the Congress. My concern is, what does God have to say? I'm not looking to the human court, I'm looking to heaven's court. This is where we take our stand. And understand, when you take a stand for righteousness, not everybody is going to like it. Take a stand for integrity in the workplace and the employee trying to cut corners is not going to like it. Take a stand for protecting the unborn and people screaming for personal rights are not going to like it. Take a stand for justice that is fair and equitable regardless of race and those with prejudice and bias are not going to like it. Take a stand in your home that like Joshua of old, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and the rebellious child is not going to like it. The crowd that listened to Stephen didn't like what he had to say. The Bible says in verse 54, when they heard his words, they were cut to the quick. But instead of, instead of repentance, they began gnashing their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They laid hands on him and dragged him outside the city. They picked up rocks and stoned him to death. And Stephen became the first martyr of the church, giving his life for the faith. Just because people don't receive it when we speak truth to the lost doesn't exempt us from the next component we find in this story. Speak truth, but don't forget to show love. This is the lesson from Stephen. He is being stoned, which means he was first pushed off a cliff onto the rocks below. When that didn't kill him, a heavy boulder was rolled down on top of him. When he survived that, the crowd picked up stones and hurled them at him until he was bludgeoned to death by the rocks. While this is going on, the Bible tells us in verses 59 and 60, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Speaking the truth to the lost doesn't give us permission to be mean. 
I feel like I need to say that again. Speaking the truth to the lost doesn't give us permission to be mean. Notice that Stephen doesn't cry out to God asking God to save him. Get him out of this. He doesn't look to strike a deal. You know, he doesn't say, no, God, if, if you'll save me, then I will. You know, that's how we try to bargain with God sometimes, right? And the nearness of death doesn't cause Stephen to lash out, but rather to show the ultimate expression of love, the same expression Jesus showed to those who nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them. See, I've discovered you can't argue people into the kingdom. You can't shame or guilt people into the kingdom. You can't coerce people into the kingdom, but you can love them into the kingdom. And our culture has confused this issue of love. See, they say if you disagree with them, you don't love them. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes the most loving thing I can do is disagree with you. But I can disagree without being disagreeable. I can accept you without affirming your choices. I can love you without endorsing your decisions. Am I doing all right? I, In this sin-infested world, we can rail and curse at the darkness, or we can turn on the light. We can make certain our words are seasoned with salt. We can be genuinely interested in people, not as a project, but as a person loved by God and created in his image. So when they are demanding, we go the extra mile. When they lash out, we turn the other cheek. When they ridicule, we rejoice, we are counted worthy to be identified with Jesus. The promise of Jesus is Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I know that just flies in the face of everything that we hear in our culture. You know, we hear, you know, if we're really blessed of the Lord, then we've got health, wealth, prosperity going, you know, just flowing out of all of our pockets. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, sometimes we think we're being persecuted, but it had nothing to do with righteousness, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that laying on the table for y'all to think about later. But he says, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. They, they persecuted the prophets before you. Why do we think we're going to be different when we take a stand? If you're going to take a stand, you're first going to speak truth to the lost, then you're going to show love. Third, you're going to shine the light. There's some interesting information contained in verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses, watch this, the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's some evidence to suggest that one of the synagogues that was resistant to the message of Stephen was the synagogue which Saul of Tarsus attended. Saul is present at the trial. He is present during the conviction. He is present during the execution. 
He's approving. He's holding the jackets of the people who pick up the stones to kill Stephen. Ah, but when Saul saw the way Stephen faced death, and when he heard the prayer for forgiveness, I have to believe it made an impact on him. See, it was after the death of Stephen that Saul started his offensive against the Christians and the church was scattered. Saul couldn't handle it when he heard the prayer of Stephen and saw his countenance glowing with the glory of the Lord. And so he reacted in the only way he knew. He reacted in anger. But the seeds had been planted. And it wasn't long before the Lord caught up with him on the road to Damascus. An angry, self-righteous, belligerent, legalist Saul was transformed into the apostle Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. I'm telling you, you never know who is watching your witness. You never know who is paying attention to the way you handle stress and opposition and setbacks. You never know what effect your life is having on someone else. When you refuse to become bitter, when you refuse to become angry, when you refuse to retaliate, when you refuse to compromise, when you take a stand and you keep standing no matter what the cost, you're shining a light of witness to someone who needs to know there is a better way. So what does it mean to take a stand? It means you speak truth to the lost. It means you show love. It means you shine the light. Finally, I want you to know it means you see the Lord. I want to back up to verses 55 and 56. This is Stephen facing death. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Perhaps one of the greatest challenges we face in the midst of a godless world is to keep our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of opposition, keep your eyes on Jesus. In the midst of persecution, keep your eyes on Jesus. In the midst of a morally bankrupt society, keep your eyes on Jesus. In the midst of personal discomfort and disappointment and discouragement, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, there's something that just jumps out at me every time I read verse 56. It's the part where Stephen says, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What strikes me as odd is the word standing. The reason this is so odd is because every other place I read about Jesus in heaven at the right hand of God, Jesus is sitting. That's what David was singing about when he prophesied in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what the writer is talking about in Hebrews 1 and 3 when he says Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the meaning of Hebrews 8, 1. 
Now, the main point in what has been said in this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the meaning of Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, enduring, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Over and over again, the picture of Jesus in heaven is of him sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. The Apostle Paul even tells us in Ephesians 2 and 6 that when we put our trust and faith in Jesus as our Savior, then positionally we are raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. The Bible is clear to say that since Jesus has completed his work on this earth, he has ascended back to heaven, and there in heaven he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from that position he does his heavenly work and ministry as the mediator between God and man and as the intercessor on, on our behalf before God. So the work Jesus is doing in heaven on our behalf is the same work the Holy Spirit is doing on our behalf on this earth. It is the work of a paraclete. In Bible days, a paraclete was a friend who came alongside as a helper. He would assist in business matters, particularly in court cases that were of a criminal nature. This paraclete would stand with the accused and offer defense on his behalf. He would offer support. He would offer counsel. He would plead the case of the accused before the court. He would assist in any way possible to see his friend treated fairly and justly and would do all within his power to secure his acquittal. Now, I'm getting ready to preach. All this has been my introduction. This is my sermon. But I had to give you all of that to get here. I want you to get this picture. Jesus hasn't long been back in heaven. He's just gotten settled in his spot at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there and he's talking with the Father, bringing various people before him for divine intervention. Suddenly, there's a commotion that catches his attention. The religious leaders are making accusation against Stephen. The sound is getting louder and louder as first one voice and then another is raised against this man in whom dwells the Spirit of the Lord. Now, if you've ever watched a courtroom drama, you'll be able to visualize what happens next. See, in a courtroom drama, the prosecuting attorney will accuse and accuse and accuse. He'll get more passionate with each accusation. He'll drive his point home harder and faster. The interrogation and the accusation will go on until finally the defense attorney who knows the charges are false can take it no more. He will then jump to his feet and say, Your Honor, I object. Now, Here's Stephen being falsely accused over and over again. The Lord is sitting beside the father just shaking his head. And finally, he's heard enough. So he stands up at the right hand of the father. 
Not only is he a defense attorney for the accused, not only is he a paraclete who is there to give support and counsel and assistance, not only is he raising an objection to the accusation, but he is also an active advocate in Stephen's defense. As Stephen is being rejected by an earthly court, he looks into the heavens and there beholds the Lord Jesus in the heavenly court standing on his feet, acting as his advocate, testifying on his behalf. Rejection by his own people, the Jews, would have been hard for Stephen to bear. But acceptance by the greatest of Jews, great David's greater son, more than compensates for the pain. And I came to this pulpit on this Sunday morning to talk to somebody who's under pressure. I came to talk to somebody who's being rejected. I came to talk to somebody who's feeling forsaken. I came to talk to somebody who's suffering the pain of ridicule. I came to talk to somebody who's being persecuted because of your faith. I came to talk to somebody who's battling guilt from your past. I came to somebody who's under the weight of condemnation from those who haven't forgotten or forgiven the sins of yesterday. I came to remind you that right now, the Lord Jesus is making intercession for you. I came to remind you that right now, the Lord Jesus is pleading your case before the Father. I came to remind you that right now, the Lord Jesus is acting as an advocate on your behalf. I came to remind you that right now the Lord Jesus is defending you before the throne of the Almighty, not on the basis of how good you are, but on the basis of how good He is. Hear me well, child of God. When the spiritual enemy of your soul begins to make a railing accusation against you to the heavenly father, the Lord Jesus will take your case as your defense attorney. He will function as your paraclete. He will be your advocate. If need be, he will even stand up in the heavenly court and say, I object. Not only will he stand up as your defender and deliverer, but when you hold true to your faith in the midst of times of testing, he will stand up as a sign of honor. When you take a stand for him, he will stand up for you. So I came to encourage somebody to hold on just a little longer. I came to challenge somebody to keep pressing on. I came to admonish, admonish somebody to stay true, remain faithful, never give up. Stop listening to the accusation of the enemy. Stop believing his lies. No matter what, you keep your eyes on the Lord. You keep trusting him. You keep believing his word. You keep proclaiming his love. You keep declaring his goodness. You keep testifying to his faithfulness. You keep bearing witness of the gospel. When everybody around you is caving in, you take a stand for Jesus. Sure, you may have hardship. You may have trial. You may be tested. You may even suffer. But Romans 8 and 18 promises, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you take a stand for Jesus, Jesus will take a stand for you. He'll welcome you into his presence with the smile of his approval, with an affirmation that says, well done, good, and faithful 
servant. Keep standing in the face of a culture that has run off the rails. Keep standing in the face of a society that tries to cancel your witness. Whatever you do, keep standing. When you take a stand for Jesus, Jesus will stand for you. As I was finishing this message, I was suddenly reminded of an old hymn. I haven't heard about this, heard this hymn or even thought about it in a very long time. But I want to encourage and challenge you with, this, with the message of this hymn as we seek to be a relevant church in a modern world. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army he shall lead. Till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor and watching under prayer, where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor song. To him that overcometh, a crown of life shall be. He, with the king of glory, shall reign eternally. Stand with me, please. Now, Lord, these are difficult days. Truth has stumbled in the street. And the righteous souls are grieved. But we know that we have a mission to stand. We also know that we're not capable of doing that in our own strength. We, we will fold every time. So Lord, I'm asking that the Holy Spirit will fill us fresh and new with a holy boldness, with a courage, a courage to stand that you'll give us the strength we need, that you'll help us. We cannot do this alone. We will cave in to peer pressure. We will give in to the, the expedient unless you help us. But Lord, you have promised that if we would call upon you, that you would indeed be our helper. Strengthen your people, I pray. Help us to be that witness for you that this world desperately needs. Thank you for hearing our prayer. 
Thank you for hearing our prayer today. I will stand and worship you forever. Stay.